Chapter Eight, Part One of the Night Operator by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Night Operator, Chapter Eight, on the Night Wire, Part One. Tommy Regan speaks of it yet. So does Carleton, and so for the matter of that does the Hill Division generally. And there's a bit of a smile goes with it too. What the smile comes through is a sort of feeble thing from the grim set of the lips. They remember it. It is one of the things they have never forgotten. Dan McGrew and the Kid, and the night the circus special pulled out of Big Cloud with Bull Coussarat and Fatty Hogan in the cab. Neither the Kid nor McGrew were what you might call born to the Hill Division. Neither of them had been brought up with it, so to speak. The kid came from an eastern system, and McGrew came from God knows where. To pin McGrew down to anything definite or specific in that regard was something just a little beyond the ability of the Hill Division. But it was fairly evident that where railroads were there, McGrew had been. He was old enough, anyway, and he knew his business. When McGrew was sober, he was a wizard on the key. But McGrew's shame was drink. McGrew dropped off at Big Cloud one day, casually, from nowhere, and asked for a job dispatching. A man in those days out in the New West wasn't expected to carry around his birth certificate in his vest pocket. He made good, or he didn't, in the clothes he stood in, and that was all there was to it. They gave him a job assisting the latest new man on the early morning trick as a sort of test, found that he was better, a long way better, than the latest new man, gave him a regular dispatcher's trick of his own, and thought they had a treasure. For a month they were warranted in their belief, for all that McGrew personally appeared to be a rather rough card, and then McGrew cut loose. He went into the Blazing Star Saloon one afternoon, and he left it only when deposited outside on the sidewalk as it closed up at four o'clock on the following morning. This was the hour McGrew was supposed to sit in for his trick at the key but McGrew was quite oblivious to all such considerations. A freight crew, just in and coming up from the yards, carried him home to his boarding-house. McGrew got his powers of locomotion back far enough by late afternoon to reach the Blazing Star again, and the performance was repeated. McGrew went the limit. He ended up with a week in the hands of little Dr. McTurk. McTurk was scientific from the soles of his feet up, and earnestly professional all the rest of the way. When McGrew began to get a glimmering of intelligence again, McTurk went at him red-headed. "'Your heart's bad,' the little doctor flung at McGrew, and there was no fooling in his voice. "'So's your liver, cirrhosis, but mostly your heart. You'll try this just once too often, and you'll go out like a collapsed balloon, out like the snuffing of a candlewick.' McGrew blinked at him. "'I've heard that before,' said he indifferently. "'Indeed,' snapped the irascible little doctor. "'Yes,' said McGrew, "'quite a few times. "'This ain't my maiden trip. "'You fellows make me tired. "'I'm a pretty good man yet, ain't I? "'And I'm likely to be when you're dead. "'I've got my job to worry about now, "'and that's enough to worry about.' "'Got any idea what Carlton said about it?' "'You'll keep this up,' said McTurk, sharply, refusing to sidestep the point, as, bag in hand, he moved toward the door. 
and it won't interest you much what Carlton or anybody else says. Mark my words, my man. It was Tommy Regan, fat-paunched, big-hearted, good-natured, who stepped into the breach. There was only one place on this wide earth in Carlton's eyes for a railroad man who drank when he should have been on duty, and that was a six-foot trench three feet deep. In Carlton's mind, from the moment he heard of it, McGrew was out. But Regan saved McGrew, and the matter was settled, as many a matter had been settled before, over the nightly game of Pedro between the superintendent and the master mechanic upstairs in the super's office over the station. Incidentally, they played Pedro because there wasn't anything else to do nights. Big Cloud in those days wasn't boasting a grand opera house, and the movies were still things of the future. "'It's a pretty rough case, I guess, but give him a chance,' said Regan. "'A chance!' exclaimed Carlton with a hard smile. "'Give a dispatcher who drinks a chance to send a trainload or two of souls into eternity.' and about a hundred thousand dollars' worth of rolling stock to the junk heap while he's boozing over the key? No, said Regan. A chance to make good. Carlton laid down his hand and stared across the table at the master mechanic. Go on, Tommy, he prompted grimly. What's the answer? Well, said Regan, he's a past master on the key. We know that. That counts for something. What's the matter with sending him somewhere up the line where he can't get a drink if he goes to blazes for it? It might make a man of him and save the company a good operator at the same time we're not long on operators. Hmm, observed Carlton with a wry grin, picking up his cards again one by one. I suppose you've got some such place as uh, Angel Forks, for instance, in mind, Tommy. Yes, said Regan, I was thinking of Angel Forks. "'I'd rather be fired,' submitted Carlton dryly. "'Well,' demanded Regan, "'what do you say? Can he have it?' "'Oh.' "'No, yes,' agreed Carlton, smiling. "'He can have that, after I've talked to him. "'We're pretty short on operators, as you say. "'Perhaps it'll all work out. "'It will as long as he sticks, I guess, "'if you'll take it at all.' "'He'll take it,' said Regan, "'and be glad to get it. "'What do you bid?' McGrew had been at Angel Forks, night man there, for perhaps the matter of a month, when the kid came to Big Cloud fresh from a key on the pen. They called him the kid because he looked it. He wasn't past the stage where he had to shave more than once a week. The kid, they dubbed him on the spot, but his name was Charlie Keene, a thin, wiry little chap with black hair and a bright, snappy, quick look in his eyes and face. He was pretty good on the key, too. Not a master like McGrew. He hadn't the experience, but pretty good for all that. He could send with the best of them, and there wasn't much to complain about in his taking, either. The day man at Angel Forks didn't drink. At least his waybill didn't read that way, and they gave him promotion in the shape of a station farther along the line that sized up a little less tomb-like, a little less like a buried-alive sepulchre than Angel Forks did. And the kid, naturally, being young and new to the system, had to start at the bottom. They sent him up to Angel Forks on the morning way freight that day after he arrived in Big Cloud. There was something about the kid that got the train crew of the way freight from the start. They liked the man a whole lot and pretty sudden in their rough-and-ready way, those railroaders of the Rockies in those days, or they didn't like him well enough to say a good word for him at his funeral. 
That's the way it went. And the caboose was swearing by the kid by the time they were halfway to Angel Forks, where he shifted from the caboose to the cab for the rest of the run. Against the rules? Riding in the cab? Well, perhaps it is. If you're not a railroad man, it depends. Who was going to say anything about it? It was Fatty Hogan himself poking a long-spouted oil can into the entrails of the 428, while the train crew were throwing out tinned biscuits and canned meats and contract pie for the lunch counter at Elk River who invited him anyhow. That's how the kid came to be acquainted with Hogan and Hogan's mate, Bull Cusarat, who was handling the shovel end of it. Cusarat was an artist in his way, apart from the shovel, and he started in to guy the kid. He drew a shuddering picture of the desolation and the general lack of what made life worth living at Angel Forks, which wasn't exaggerated because you couldn't exaggerate Angel Forks much in that particular respect, and he told the kid about Dan McGrew and how headquarters, it wasn't any secret, had turned Angel's Forks into what he called a booze-fighter's sanatorium. But he didn't break through the kid's optimism or ambition much of any to speak of. By the time the wave freight whistled for Angel Forks, the kid had Bull Cusarat's seat, and Cusarat was doing the listening, while Hogan was leaning toward them to catch what he could of what was going on over the roar and pound of the 428. There was better pay, and what counted most, better chances for a man who was willing to work for them out in the West than there was in the East, the kid told them with a quiet, modest sincerity, and that was why he had come out there. He was looking for a train dispatcher's key some day after he had got through station operating, and after that, well, something better still. There wasn't any jolly business or blowhard about the kid. He meant what he said. He was going up. And as far as McGrew was concerned, he'd get along with McGrew. McGrew, or any other man, wouldn't hold him back from the goal he had his eyes set upon and his mind made up to work for. There was perhaps a little more of the youthful enthusiasm in it that looked more buoyantly on the future than hard-headed experience would, but it was sincere, and they liked him for it. Who wouldn't? Bull Cusarat and Fatty Hogan in the days to come had reason to remember that talk in the cab. Desolate, perhaps, isn't the word to describe Angel Forks, for Angel Forks was pretty enough, if rugged grandeur is counted pretty. Across the track and siding, facing the two-story wooden structure that was the station, the bare gray rock of a cut through the mountain base reared upward to meet a pine-covered slope, and then blend with bare gray rock, once until it became a glaciered peak at the skyline. Behind the station was a sort of plateau, a little valley, green and velvety, bisected by a tumbling, rushing little stream, with the mountains again closing in around it, towering to majestic heights, the sun playing in relief and shadow on the fantastic, irregular, snow-capped summits. It was pretty enough. No one ever disputed that. The road hung four-by-five-foot photographs of it with eight-inch-wide trimmed with gilt frames in the big hotel corridors east, and no one who ever bought a ticket on the strength of the photographer's art ever sent in a kick to the advertising department or asked for their money back. It looked all right from the car windows. But sign of habitation there was not, apart from the little station, not even a section man's shanty, just the station. 
Angel Forks was important to the Transcontinental on one count, and on one count only, its siding. Neither freight nor passenger receipts were swelled twelve months in or twelve months out by Angel Forks. But geographically, the train dispatcher's office back in Big Cloud never lost sight of it. In the heart of the mountains, single-tracked, mixed trains, locals, wave freights, specials, and the limiteds that knew no rights on earth but a clean-swept track with their crazy fast schedules, met and crossed each other as expediency demanded. So, in a way, after all, perhaps it was desolate, except from the car windows. Horton, the day-man that the kid was relieving, evidently had found it so. He was waiting on the platform with his trunk, when the way freight pulled in and he turned the station over to the kid without much formality. God be with you till we meet again, was about the gist of what Horton said, and he said it with a mixture of sympathy for another's misfortune and an uplift at his own escape from the bondage struggling for the mastery, while he waved his hand from the tail of the caboose as the way freight pulled out. There was mighty little formality about the transfer and the kid found himself in charge with almost breathtaking celerity. Angel Forks, Dan McGrew, Way Freight Number 47, and the man he had relieved were sort of hazy, nebulous things for a moment. There wasn't time for them to be anything else, for about one minute after he had jumped to the platform, he was OSing out the train that had brought him in. It wasn't quite what he had been used to back in the more sedate East, and he grinned a little to himself as his fingers tapped the key, and by the time he had got back his OK, the tail of the caboose was swinging a curve and disappearing out of sight. The kid then had a chance to look around him and look for Dan McGrew, the man who was to be his sole companion for the days to come. He found McGrew upstairs, after he'd explored all there was to explore of the ground floor of the station, which was a sort of combination kitchen, living room, and dining room that led off from the office, just the two rooms below with a ladder-like staircase between them leading up above. And above there was just the one room under the eaves, with two bunks in it, one on either side. The night man was asleep in one of these, and the kid did not disturb him. After a glance around the rather cheerless sleeping quarters, he returned downstairs and started in to pick up the threads of the office. Dusk comes early in the fall in the mountains, and at five o'clock the switch and semaphore lamps were already lighted, and in the office under a green-shaded lamp the kid sat listening to some stray-time stuff coming over the wire, when he heard the night man moving overhead and presently start down the stairs. The kid pushed back his chair, rose to his feet, and turned with outstretched hand to make friends with his new mate, and his outstretched hand drew back and reached uncertainly to the table edge beside him. For a long minute neither man spoke, staring into each other's eyes. In the opening through the partition at the foot of the stairs, Dan McGrew seemed to sway a little on his feet, and his face, what could be seen of it through the tawny beard that Angel Forks had offered him no incentive to shave, was ashen white. It was McGrew who broke the silence. "'Hello, Charlie,' he said in a sort of cheerful bravado that rang far from true. So you are Dan McGrew. The last time I heard of you, your name was Brody. The kid's lips, as he spoke, hardly seemed to move. I've had a dozen since then, said McGrew in a pleading whine. More than a dozen. I've been chased from place to place. Charlie, I've lived a 
dog's life, and the kid cut him short in a low, passionate voice. And you expect me to keep my mouth shut about you here. Is that it? McGrew's fingers plucked nervously, hesitantly at his beard, his tongue circled dry lips, and his black eyes fell from the kid to trace aimlessly, it seemed, the cracks in the floor. The kid dropped back into his chair, and elbows on the table, chin in hand, stared out across the tracks to where the side of the rock cut was now no more than a black shadow. Again it was McGrew who broke the silence. What, what are you going to do? he asked miserably. What are you going to do? Use the key and put em wise? <laughs> you wouldn't do that, would you, Charlie? You wouldn't throw me down, would you? I'm... I, I'm living decent here. The kid made no answer, made no movement. Charlie, McGrew's voice rose in a high-pitched nervous appeal. Charlie, w what are you gonna do? Nothing. The kid's eyes were still on the black rock shadow through the station window, and the words came monotonously. Nothing. As far as I'm concerned, you are. Dan McGrew... McGrew lurched heavily forward, relief in his face and voice as he put his hands on the kid's shoulders. "'You're all right, Charlie, all right. I knew you wouldn't.' The kid sprang to his feet and flung the other's hands roughly from his shoulders. "'Keep your hands off me,' he said tensely. "'I don't stand for that. And let's understand each other. You do your work here and I do mine. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want you to talk to me.' I don't want anything to do with you. That's as straight as I know how to put it. The first chance I get, I'll move. They'll never move you, for I know why they sent you here. That's all, and that's where we stand, McGrew. Do you mean that? said McGrew in a cowed, helpless way. The kid's answer was only a harsh, bitter laugh, but it was answer enough. McGrew, after a moment's hesitation, turned and went silently from the room. A week passed, and another week came and went, and neither man spoke to the other. Each lived his life apart, cooked for himself, and did his work, and it was good for neither one. McGrew grew morose and ugly, and the kid somehow seemed to droop, and there was a pallor in his cheeks and a listless air about him that was far from the cheery optimism with which he had come to take the key at Angel Forks. Two weeks passed. And then one night, after the kid had gone to bed, two men pitched a rough, weather-beaten tent on the plateau below the station. Hard-looking specimens they were, unkempt, unshaven, each with a mount and a pack-horse. Harvey and Lansing, they told McGrew their names were when they dropped in for a social call that night, and they said they were prospectors. But their geological hammers were bottles of raw spirit that the Indians loved, and the veins of ore they tapped were the furs that an Indian will sell for red-eye when he will sell for no other thing on earth. It was against the law, enough against the law to keep a man's mouth who was engaged in that business pretty tightly shut. But recognizing a kindred spirit in McGrew, and warmed by the bottle they had hospitably brought, before that first night was over, no secret of that sort lay between them and McGrew. And so drink came to Angel Forks. And in a supply that was not stinted, it was Harvey and Lansing's stock in trade, and they were well stocked. 
McGrew bought it from them with cash and with provisions and played poker with them with a kitty for the red eye. There was nothing riotous about it at first, not bad enough to incapacitate McGrew, and it was a night or two before the kid knew what was going on, for McGrew was cautious. Harvey and Lansing were away in the mountains during the daytime, and they came late to fraternize with McGrew around midnight, long after the kid was asleep. Then McGrew began to tipple steadily, and signs of drink came patently enough, too patently to be ignored one morning when the kid relieved McGrew and went on for the day trick. The kid said nothing. No word had passed between them for two weeks. But that evening, when McGrew in turn went on for his trick, the kid went upstairs and found a bottle, nearly full, hidden under McGrew's mattress. He took it, went outside with it, smashed it against a rock, and kept on across the plateau to the prospector's outfit. Harvey and Lansing, evidently just in from a day's lucrative trading, were unsaddling and busy over their pack animals. "'Hello, King!' they greeted in chorus, and Lansing added, "'Hang around a bit and join in. We're just going to cook grub.' The kid ignored both the salutation and the proffered hospitality. "'I came down here to tell you two fellows something,' he said slowly and there was a grim, earnest set to his lips that was not to be misunderstood. It's none of my business that you're camping around here, but up there is railroad property, and that is my business. If you show your faces inside the station again, or pass out any booze to McGrew, I'll wire headquarters and have you run in. And somehow, though I've only met you once or twice, I don't fancy you're anxious to touch head-on with the authorities." He looked at the two steadily for an instant while they stared back half angrily, half sheepishly. "'That's fair warning, isn't it?' he ended as he turned and began to retrace his steps to the station. "'You'd better take it. You won't get a second one.' They cursed him when they found their tongues and did it heartily, interwoven with threats and savage jeers that followed him halfway to the embankment but their profanity did not cloak the fact that to a certain extent the kid's words were worthy of consideration. The extent was two nights, that night and the next one. On the third night, or rather far on in the early morning hours, the kid upstairs, awakened from sleep, sat suddenly up in his bunk. A wild outburst of drunken song, accompanied by fists banging time on the table, reached him, then an abashed hush, through which the click of the sounder came to him, and he read it mechanically. The dispatcher at Big Cloud was making a meeting point for two trains at the bend, forty miles away, nothing to do with Angel Forks. Came then a rough oath, another, and a loud, brawling altercation. The kid's lips thinned. He sprang out of his bunk, pulled on shirt and trousers, and went softly down the stairs. They didn't hear him. They were too drunk for that. They didn't see him until he was fairly inside the room, and then for a moment they leered at him, suddenly silent in a silly, owl-like way. There was anger upon the kid, a seething passion, that showed in his bloodless face and quivering lips. He stood for an instant motionless, glancing around the office. The table from the other room had been dragged in. On either side of it sat Harvey and Lansing. At the end, within reach of the key, sat Dan McGrew, swaying tipsily back and forth, cards in hand. Under the table was an empty bottle. Another had rolled into a corner against the wall, 
and on the table itself were two more bottles amongst greasy scattered cards, one almost full, the other still unopened. It's all right, Charlie, <laughs> hiccuped McGrew blandly. It's all right, just having a little game. Good boy, Charlie. McGrew's words seemed to break the spell. With a jump, the kid reached him, flung him roughly from his seat, toppling him to the floor, and stretched out his hand for the key. But he never reached it. Harvey and Lansing, remembering the threat and having more reason to fear the law than on the simple count of trespassing on railroad property, lunged for him simultaneously. Quick as a cat on his feet, the kid turned and his fist shot out, driving full into Lansing's face, sending the man staggering backward, but Harvey closed. Purling oaths, Lansing snatched the full bottle, and as the kid, locked in Harvey's arms, swung toward him, he brought the bottle down with a crash on the back of the kid's head, and the kid slid limply to the floor. White-faced, motionless, unconscious, the kid lay there, the blood beginning to trickle from his head, and in a little way it sobered the two prospectors, but not McGrew. "'Say what's done?' said McGrew with a maudlin sob, picking himself up from where the kid had thrown him. "'Say what's done. Killed him. That's what's done.' It frightened them, McGrew's words, Harvey and Lansing. They looked again at the kid and saw no sign of life. And then they looked at each other. The bottle was still in Lansing's hand, and he set it back now on the table with a little shudder. Uh, we, "'We better beat it,' he croaked hoarsely. "'By daylight we want to be far away from here.' Harvey's answer was a practical one. He made for the door and disappeared, Lansing close on his heels. McGrew alternately cursed and pleaded with them long after they were out of earshot, and then, moved by drunken inspiration, started to clear up the room. He got as far as reaching for the empty bottles on the floor— and that act seemed to father a second inspiration. There were other bottles. He reeled to the table, picked up the one from which they had been drinking, stared at the kid upon the floor, brushed the hair out of his eyes, and throwing back his head, drank deeply. Yes, sir. Steady myself. Feel shaky, he mumbled. He stared at the kid again. The kid was beginning to show signs of returning consciousness. McGrew, blinking, took another drink. And I said dead after all, said McGrew thickly. Thank God, not dead after all. Then drunken cunning came into his eyes. He slid the full bottle into his pocket and, carrying the other in his hand, stumbled upstairs, drank again, and hid them craftily, not beneath the mattress this time, but under the eaves where the flooring met, and there was a loose plank. When he stumbled downstairs again, the kid was sitting in a chair, holding his swimming head in his hands. "'All right, Charlie,' said McGrew inanely. The kid did not look at him. His eyes were fixed upon the table. "'Where are those bottles?' he demanded suspiciously. "'Gone,' said McGrew plaintively. "'Gone with the fellas. The fellas took em and ran away.' "'What's going to do about it, Charlie?' "'I'll tell you when you're sober,' said the kid curtly. "'Get up to your bunk and sleep it off.' "'My trick,' said McGrew heavily, waving his hand toward the key. "'Well, I should fellow do my work.' "'Your trick,' 
The words came in a withering, bitter rush from the kid. Your trick. You're in fine shape to hold down a key, aren't you? Oh, why should we reason I ain't? Held it down all right so far, said McGrew, a world of injury in his voice, and it was true, so far he had held it down all right that night, for the very simple reason that Angel Forks had not been the elected meeting point of trains for a matter of some three hours, not since the time when Harvey and Lansing had dropped in and McGrew had been sober. "'Get up to your bunk!' said the kid between his teeth, and that was all. McGrew swayed hesitantly for a moment on uncertain legs, blinked soddenly a sort of helpless protest, and, turning, staggered up the stairs. For a little while the kid sat in his chair, trying to conquer his dizzy, swimming head, and then the warm blood trickling down his neck, he had not noticed it before, roused him to action. He took the lamp and went into the other room, bathed his head in the wash-basin, sopping at the back of his neck to stop the flow, and finally bandaged it as best he could with a wet cloth as a compress and a towel drawn tightly around it, which he knotted on his forehead. He finished McGrew's abortive attempt at house-cleaning after that, and sat in to hold down the rest of the night trick while McGrew, in sleep, should recover his senses. But McGrew did not sleep. McGrew was fairly started, and McGrew had two bottles at command. End of chapter 8, part 1